Hi, I'm Justin Guest, a doctoral student in the Department of Government here at the LSE. And with us on today's edition of The Hot Seat is Anne Phillips, Professor of Political and Gender Theory at the LSE. And uh, we're here to talk about multiculturalism and democracy and the most recent comments by uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. And why don't we start there, Professor Phillips? Um, last week, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, sparked widespread outrage and a certifiable Anglican crisis with comments about the inevitability of Sharia law uh, being enforced in Britain. Now, beyond this massive criticism that uh, happened afterwards, those familiar with British Islamic culture have said that on closer look, many Muslims already follow Sharia, perhaps privately and informally, but they do in fact uh, follow it, and that the Archbishop's statements will hopefully direct attention to different uninstitutionalized cultures and lifestyles here in the UK. My first question is whether or not you think that's true. However, yes or no, either way. I wonder, did the Archbishop's comments, as they were worded, needlessly widen the gap in social cohesion between non-Muslims and Muslims here in the UK? Or in the long term, did he perhaps bring us all closer together? Well, I think uh, for the moment it looks as though it's widened the gap. Um, Not necessarily because of the way he put it, but certainly... Uh, the way in which it was almost inevitably picked up by the media. Um, I mean, I think it's given a platform to um, uh, all kinds of uh, stereotyping of uh, Muslims in Britain and uh, the usual kind of you know, overreactions when the term Sharia is, is heard. Uh, I mean, I, I think, as far as I can understand what he was saying, that, uh, um, I mean, his argument, it did seem as though he was arguing for uh, a level of... Uh, um, institutionalization of Sharia that uh, I think would be deeply problematic. But the issues that he's raising are ones that are, in fact, I think, quite important. And uh, I mean, it's a shame that we can't have a more nuanced debate. Um, I mean, the, I mean, for me, the kind of the really uh, important thing about the Sharia councils is the ways in which they've provided, uh, you know, a way out for devout Muslim women from marriages that um, otherwise they can't get a divorce from. I mean, obviously, they can get a civil divorce, no problem. But if you're, you know, if you're devoutly religious, then getting a civil divorce is, uh, is not adequate. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, in, in Islam, uh, I mean, in, I think, all schools of Islam, but certainly most schools of Islam, the, um, uh, the man has the right to refuse uh, the divorce uh, unless that's... Um, uh, unless an alternative judgment comes from uh, Sharia Council. And, and so, in fact, I mean, the Sharia Councils vary. Uh, the Sharia Councils that operate in Britain vary, and some are a lot more conservative than others, and some, um, you know, much more likely to uh, try and persuade women back into unhappy marriages. But, you know, for a lot of women, um, basically they've managed to get a religious divorce through the Sharia courts. So... Um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, there are complicated issues there about, you know, to what extent... I mean, I think the issue, the issue that, to me, is, is, is kind of complicated, but it's far too nuanced for, <laughs> you, know, for you know, for the kind of discussion that uh, Rowan Williams tried to open up. Uh, the issue, that, for me, that's kind of, uh, that's, that, that's kind of uh, you know, a difficult one is, you know, given that the Sharia courts vary a lot in terms of what they offer... Um, you know, would it be useful to have some further level of monitoring and regulation? Um, 
you know, which, which could be a way of actually ensuring that the kind of judgments that were given were much more equitable um, across the country rather than being some that are you know, more progressive and some that are more conservative. Uh, but doing that actually means institutionalising Sharia courts much more formally, which then does seem problematic. So, I mean, I think there's, a, there's an important and troubling issue there, but I don't think that's the one that we're having a debate on at the moment. Well, the divide over these issues is certainly there. Now, in an edited volume some years ago, Steve Rtovec, a professor of uh, anthropology, formerly at Oxford, actually, wrote that the vast majority of our mentions of social cohesion usually actually refer to its deficiency. I wonder, what for you is co social cohesion, and what does it look like? <laughs> well, I think, uh, I think social cohesion, um, to me, is, is hard to imagine in societies in which you have really major uh, inequalities of income. And I think that one of the things that's gone really wrong with the discussion about social cohesion is that it's become so much focused on issues to do with migration, to do with religion, to do with supposed cultural difference, uh, when it seems to me some of the biggest problems of social cohesion uh, that we face at the moment are, are much more kind of grounded in uh, levels of uh, income inequality, deprivation, and so on. So that if you think about what are the two issues that people actually discuss at the moment, there's the kind of the, the anxiety about um, a sort of alienated, disaffected youth, um, which is, 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 you know, I mean, it's you know complicated story. Everything, everything in society is complicated, but clearly is grounded in some way in social and economic inequalities. And then the other story that people tell is about the supposed uh, alienation, disaffection of Muslims within Britain, uh, which is then seen as grounded in religious and cultural difference. And I just wish people would actually put those two stories together a bit more and actually really discuss questions of social cohesion in ways that, that actually saw the, the wider picture. But that's a kind of negative. That's what I think social cohesion isn't, rather than what I think it is, which I, I find much harder to answer. I mean, you know, to draw up a picture of what social, social cohesion looks like is... You know. It's clearly a problem if you don't have social cohesion, but I think, I think there's also a very big problem in the way in which people misdescribe the problem of social cohesion. Well, with or without social cohesion, Professor Phillips, in your career you've been a general proponent of secularism and disestablishment of the church. I wonder, for you, why is secularism the best way to organize a polity of multiple faiths and multiple ethnicities, when many of those faiths and ethnicities actually desire positive recognition and equal protection. Yeah, well, I think, the, for me, secularism is precisely a recognition of the fact that there is a multiplicity of faiths and, of course, a multiplicity including people who don't have, you know, who, don't, who aren't believers. Um, and within that kind of context, you know, what, you know, we need a kind of politics which, which, which is kind of a, able to give both guarantees of religious freedom uh, to people regardless of the differences in, in religion um, and is able to sort of operate equal respect across different religions and across those who have beliefs and those who don't. Um, I think what's really problematic at the moment is the way that the kind of notion of secularism is to being defined against religion. I mean, to, to me, secularism kind of arises as an issue precisely because there is religious difference. There are religions, there are non-religions, and that's why we have an issue of secularism. Um, 
I think one of the kind of rather worrying things about the current discourse um, is that there's a kind of rather more strident secularism, which is not the kind that I feel most at home with, which is kind of like falling into defining religion and religious belief as kind of like superstition, irrationality, backwardness, uh, in ways that actually make it very difficult to, uh, certainly very difficult to think in terms of social cohesion, to go back to your earlier question. Well, do you think that the Archbishop would have felt as obligated to make the remarks that he made if the Anglican Church were not the established church in Britain, uh, but was actually one of many? Possibly, possibly. I hadn't really been thinking along those lines, but yes, I mean, I think the... Um, I think the, probably the Anglican Church uh, has this sense of its, its, its position as the kind of privileged and favoured church uh, and possibly therefore more of a responsibility to speak out for other religions than might otherwise be the case. Um, you know, sort of, I mean, who knows whether that's what's part of what's going on. Well, in a similar spirit, a lot of ink has been spilled writing about how civic democracies should change with the composition of their societies to meet the needs of the different ethnicities and religions living therein. Um, but how should the ethnically and religiously different change in order to meet the needs of the civic democracy itself? Yeah, I'd start a bit of a stage back in answering that question, in fact, because, I mean, my, my view is that we hugely exaggerate uh, the, the nature of cultural difference in contemporary society and that we've got into a way of talking about cultural difference and talking about cultures which really just doesn't kind of correspond to the reality of most people's lives. Um, I mean, one of my most recent publications, a book called Multiculturalism Without Culture, is a kind of argument for multiculturalism that tries to take issue with some of the, um, I think, kind of over sort of rigidified, essentialized, I think, really distorted understandings of cultural difference. So, so first of all, I'd say that, you know, the problem that we face is not a problem of, you know, people, uh, you know, locked in <laughs> kind of like sort of somehow profoundly different cultures with profoundly different sets of values. And, and in fact, I'm quite uh, sort of uh, critical as a result of some of the ways in which people throw around the notion of British values as if there is kind of the values of one culture, which can be called the British values, and then there's somehow the completely different and opposing values of other cultures. Um, so I think the, the, the problem is, is sometimes kind of misdescribed as one of how do we bring together uh, groups of people whose values are profoundly different and, you know, who kind of, you know, can barely begin to speak to one another. You know, I think, uh, I think you know, I mean, having said that, um, I mean, I think, you know, societies, you know, operate successfully when there's a certain kind of, you know, shared set of, you know, you know, roughly shared set of kind of understandings and principles that kind of that guide that society. I don't think many societies have that, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, you know, except at a pretty thin level, I think there aren't many societies in the world which have, you know, a, you know, a really kind of shared, you know, consensual notion of what it is that's important. I mean, you know, I think... It's kind of you know, part of the nature of human existence that we have, we have hugely different views. But they're not views that, that can be simply characterised as the kind of the differences between culture A and culture B. I think that that's, that's kind of very often a misrepresentation. Does Britain have one of those shared values? 
or if not, uh, perhaps, which ones should they have? Well, I think principles of human rights, principles of democracy, principles of equality between the sexes, I think all of these are kind of hugely important values. Um, they're values that have been fought for uh, over, over centuries. Um, they're ones that have only been very... Uh, they only have a kind of very recent and kind of fragile status. I mean, as you, as you know, human rights <laughs> is something that uh, successive politicians have, uh, you know, have felt was kind of somehow alien to the you know, British way of thinking about politics. Uh, equality between the sexes is a kind of, you know, very recently kind of accepted as a kind of working principle of our political uh, lives, and it clearly isn't yet a principle of our economic lives. You know, so, I mean, these are important values, and they're ones that have been thrown up through, you know, you know basically through history of, of kind of political struggle. Um, they're not uh, absolutely embedded <laughs> in the consensus, uh, but they're kind of sufficiently embedded so that you could kind of talk about them as being, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, so that at least people would understand what you meant when you said that these were kind of uh, important uh, principles. So, you know, those sorts of things seem to me to be important. It would, of course, be a complete misdescription to describe those as British values, you know, as if, you know, they're not precisely the kinds of values that, you know, like, you know, half the countries in the world would also want to subscribe to. Um, but, you know, they're important values. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, Professor Phillips. Uh, with us today was Professor Anne Phillips, and uh, author of the book Multiculturalism Without Culture. That'll do it for this edition of The Hot Seat. Please join us next month uh, with a new edition here on the Government Department website. We'll see you then.